Hello and welcome to episode three of the Baseball Trade Values podcast. Uh, my name is Joshua Iverson, the associate editor of BaseballTradeValues.com, joined as always by editor and founder John Bitzer. John, how are you doing? I'm doing okay, Josh. How are you? Pretty solid. Um, it's been camps are starting up. Uh, spring training games have finally gotten underway. So, as we'd expect, news is slowing down on the trade front. Uh, we'll likely see some deals made uh, with some like fringe roster players as the weeks go on, as teams start to finalize their rosters. But for now, it's a little quiet. Um, so we are going to start by just jumping through the little bits and pieces of news that there are. Uh, first, I wanted to kick it off by asking you, John. Um, so does Arizona Diamondbacks left-handed pitcher Madison Bumgarner does the recent news of his second life as a rodeo <laughs> wrangler affect his trade value in any way? You know, I had to think about that one because I don't think there's a precedent for that. Hmm, what is the injury risk of falling off a horse? <laughs> it's probably significant. Well, um, when you have guys like Joanna Cespedes who injure themselves <laughs> running away from wild boars. Right. There's it's an something you too. consider. Yes. Of course. So we've got to factor in the model wild boar risk, you know, rodeo risk. And Bumgarner's no stranger to those weird injuries either, the whole dirt bike incident. Dirt bike risk. (laughs) Exactly. Um, You know, I thought his contract was a little bit steep for where he's at in his career um, because he's been in decline for a while, but that's just going to add a little bit more steepness. I mean, I'm kidding, uh, but, (laughs) you know. um, Hey, maybe maybe they had to – Maybe the D-backs wanted a no rodeo clause, and Bumgarner <laughs> said, "Hey, I need another year, extra five mil for that." And so, or it could be the Kyler Murray situation all over again. Well, we'll let you do rodeo yeah. as long as you come back and play baseball. And so, and so next year he's gonna <laughs> quit baseball entirely to go pursue his <laughs> rodeo fantasies. Yeah. Well, yeah. So we're gonna have to keep an eye on that one just to see exactly what happens in terms of his its effect on his either his performance or his injury risk. We will certainly, I mean, all joking aside, there is yes. a little bit of truth to that. Yes. <laughs> and in all seriousness, we're hoping there's no injury there. But yeah. that's a funny story that just came out and yeah. something that we'll keep a little bit of an eye on for mm-hmm. what we do. Uh, moving on back into the real news. Um, last episode, we talked for a while about the Will Myers, Red Sox, Padres rumors. Um, right after we published, there was a slight update there that was clarifying that, yes, the Padres are interested in Nick Senzel, and they've had some discussions with the Reds, along with the Red Sox, about a three-team deal there. Um, that update was from February 19th, though, and we haven't heard anything new on that front since, so that's just a small little nugget, still something to keep our eyes on. That's the only real significant deal we've heard much about this spring. Yeah, and... Um... You know, our our user base seems to have noticed that story and mm-hmm. started, you know, working out a few trade proposals, and we kept our eye on them. But you know, the one pattern I saw is that it's really actually quite difficult. And I think there's, you know, uh, I, I think the story mentioned that the Padres have kind of coveted Senzel for a while. Mm-hmm. It's it's one thing to say that; it's another thing to actually pony up and make that happen, yeah. especially in the context of a three-way with the Red Sox, where you're giving up negative value, so you have to kick in positive value of prospects already to the Boston Red Sox, mm-hmm. much less more positive value to get Senzel from the Reds. So that's right. uh, that's a whole bunch of stuff that San Diego mm-hmm. would have to get rid of, and so that's where it gets hard. It's it's a deal that I 
and we'll get we'll get into it a little bit deeper um, later on with our trade of the week. Um, it's something that I could see making a lot of sense for the Padres um, if they really do love Senzel so much and they're a team that thinks they can compete in the next year or two. And they are a team that's kind of overloaded with prospects right now. Their roster is getting real crowded. They've had to make some deals to consolidate uh, before the Wu 5 draft. Um, they're a team that can afford to consolidate a few B-tier, B-plus, A-minus prospects into a former A-plus prospect that they think can be a young MLB superstar in the near future. True. But, but then again, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure I see it so much from the red side as exactly. of right now. And, and this is very I'm early going. on. We don't know any specifics of who might be going where, really. But I don't really see a good fit there. Uh, San Diego's kind of deep in the outfield and the rotation, and so is Cincinnati. So And, and Cincinnati's made it very clear Right. If anyone, not everyone had noticed, but they're very clear. They're going for it. You know, they're tired of losing. They spent a lot of money on free agents. You know, they, you know, they traded for Bauer, kind of jumped the gun, and mm-hmm. you know, so they, they're going for it. They're loading up. So if they were, if they were interested in any sort of improvement, it would be to the major league roster. And, but the major league roster is starting to look pretty strong. So mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't see, you know what san diego would have to give and san diego is in the same boat they're going for it too because they're tired of losing two and their gm is under pressure so Mm -hmm. they're both kind of stuck so it's hard Mm -hmm. to see a fit there yeah you can maybe see an argument for pieces like say adrian morejon i think morejon something (laughs) Um, impressive (laughs) a piece like that might appeal to the reds and maybe a piece like anthony anthony desclafani who is a free agent at the end of 2020 might appeal to the Padres since mm-hmm. they're a little weaker in uh, reliable MLB starting pitching. Mm-hmm. So maybe a, f- a swap like that where Morihone's value is obviously higher since he comes with six years of team control and he's a, uh, to- a top level prospect um, versus just a year of a mid rotation back end type guy in Desclafani. Maybe there's a swap there where the Reds can see themselves coming out on top value wise, but uh it's a, it's a complicated situation. I yeah. wouldn't call a swap like that likely by any means until we get reports that say it suddenly is likely. Uh, but worth keeping an eye on because it could be something really large and really fun. It, it could be, yeah. But as, as we get deeper into the uh, spring training, it, it seems un- unlikely. It seems less and less likely, I should <laughs> say. You know, and, you know, you get to a point where it's like, okay, let's see how the season goes, and then we'll talk at the deadline if that's <laughs> – you know, if that's still uh, something that they don't want to consider. Yeah. And so then moving on from that, another small nugget is that Ryan Divish of the Seattle Times reporting that Mariners third baseman Kyle Seeger, longtime third baseman, um, did receive some trade interest in the offseason. Uh, discussed him with a handful of teams, but as of now, he's staying put. Uh, what's interesting to note there is he had a pretty strong second half to 2019, really rebounded from – it, it looked like he was just turning into Albatross contract territory. Mm-hmm. Um, his second half of 2019 really brought him back into being a potentially valuable asset. And the one caveat there, though, is his contract. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's not cheap. He gets $37 million over the next two years, plus he has a tra- uh, an option for 2022 that currently it's a club option. If he gets traded, it becomes a player option. Right. And so teams could see that as a hurdle. He's getting up there in age. Um, 
maybe they don't want that third year guaranteed at such a high figure. Yeah. So effectively, we we have factored that into our model, right? Mm-hmm. So if he gets traded, that fifteen million dollar third year kicks in. So what he's really owed is fifty two fifty two million in a in a trade scenario. We have his field value estimated right now as around 27, 28. Let's call it 27.6. So he's underwater by 24, mm-hmm. um, you know, on paper. Um, and the other thing is the third base market seems to have kind of cleared up. You notice Bryant's not moving, Arenado's not moving. You know, all the other teams that were looking for third baseman, I think, have sort of settled to, to, to say, for now anyway to say, okay, we're going to go with what we got. Um, and, uh, and then we'll talk later if we still need one. He is sort of the sort of the cheaper alternative, if you will, you know, to Bryant, you know, or Arenado, where he doesn't cost as much in money, doesn't cost as much in terms of trade capital, you know, uh, the Mariners might kick in some money there to make it more palatable. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's a possibility. And if you if you buy his second half numbers from last year and think, yeah, he's still got some life in him, and on paper he does, you know, 27 million of field value is not bad. Mm-hmm. So it's just he's overpaid. So yeah. if you just solve that issue, then you're okay. You've got a you know relatively productive third baseman. You know if you need that. Mm-hmm. I think the one the one holdup there probably would be his age, if anything, um, being that he's going to be 32 or he is 32 now. Will be 32 for all of this season. Uh, so if you're acquiring him, even if say you're having the Mariners pay half of his contract the rest of the way, and you're giving up just peanuts to get him. I'm still not sure a team will be too excited to be playing to be paying a 35-year-old Kyle Seager seven and a half million dollars in 2022. Yeah, and so and, you know, if a need arises, if an injury arises, and we're at the trade deadline, and there's a market for third baseman, and you know, you can you can swing it. You know, I'm sure Jerry Depoto would be happy to swing a deal if they can work mm-hmm. out. So he's he's never been afraid of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll and keep then, an eye on that one as well. Right. Right. Um, and then one last little bit that you actually mentioned, uh, Chris Bryant uh, sat down with Theo Epstein and Cubs uh, head folks in baseball ops. And according to Gordon Wittenmeyer of the Chicago Sun-Times, uh, he, Bryant feels confident that not only will he not be traded now, but that he'll stick with the Cubs throughout the season. And so obviously that's what else is what else is management going to tell their superstar player that they still probably haven't ruled out extending? Uh, they're not going to tell him, yeah, you're good for now. We're trading you in July. <laughs> but it's an interesting, still an interesting story that it seems like all indications point to him staying put at least for now. And maybe there is a scenario where he stays with the team throughout the rest of his contract or at least until next offseason. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's certainly possible. Um, the Cubs may just go with what they have and, and see if they're competitive. Mm-hmm. And if they're not, then it becomes an obvious chip at the trade deadline. Um, you know, from my point of view, when we look at the numbers, you know, he's obviously the one that stands out as, you know, the guy with the most trade value of the ones they could consider, mm-hmm. you know, with, with two years left on his contract. Um, Wilson Contreras, their catcher, has three years left, and that um, – you know, he's been a focus of trade rumors as well, but we just can't see the trade value there as much. He's he's a little bit overrated in my view. He had some yeah. kind of down years. He's not great defensively. He's been a little bit inconsistent. He's not as, as great as some people might suggest, at least in terms of the numbers and the projections that we see. So which which squares with, you know, the fact that, you know, Chicago 
seemed to have shopped him but didn't get offers that uh, satisfied them. So mm -hmm. they thought, okay, well, let's see if, you know, dare we dare we entertain the notion of, of trading Bryant? Well, that's because they need something back because they're stuck. And so they want some value and there's where the value yeah. is. So, and it's <laughs> worth pointing out that Contreras is making far less money than Bryant and will continue to make far less money than Bryant. Bryant has the rookie of the year on his uh, on his baseball reference page, the rookie of the year, the MVP, all the hardware, plus he's just, a, as you noted, a better player, a more productive baseball player. So even if it is two years of him, he's still going to be making significantly more than three years of Contreras. Yeah. Um, but I do wonder if that's an avenue they consider more seriously, um, either at the deadline or next offseason. The Cubs are pretty... I don't want to say deep organizationally at catcher, but they do have top prospect Miguel Amaya. They have Victor Caratini, who they like. And so, and catching is pretty bare bones across the league. It's one of the thinnest positions across the league. So that's why right. even if a player like Contreras isn't necessarily a superstar um, in a vacuum, compared to the rest of the league at catcher, he's a top five catcher. That's right. One, undoubtedly. That's that's another reason why he's an all-star is because there's not mm -hmm. that much competition you know <laughs> compared yeah. to the rest of the pack he looks pretty good it doesn't mean he's great it just means better than the rest of them so um yeah i mean i think maybe what they're thinking is let's see if he has a good first half and his trade value increases and uh you know maybe that'll make that decision a little mm -hmm. easier you know if especially ideally for from that point of view well not ideal for the cubs or their fans but let's say they're not really competitive but he's doing well then that's a perfect scenario um, mm -hmm. so quite the opposite would be if they're competitive and he's having a bad year well then you know <laughs> all bets are off yeah and it, and it is worth noting that the cubs are projected to be the strongest team in the nl central by i believe both Bakota and fan graphs um they're the favorite by projection systems they're still a strong team even if they did miss the playoffs last year there were a lot of weird factors in there with that um, some weird sequencing uh, guys just didn't hit with runners in scoring position down the stretch and that's more often than not a fluke so they're still a very good baseball team and I think it's it might be the right decision right now to hang on to their stars and see what happens in the first half give it a go in what looks like a very winnable division yeah, and all those those four contenders in the AL, NL Central are pretty closely matched uh, with the Reds now stepping up in talent acquisition and, and making mm -hmm. themselves competitive. You've still got the Brewers, who had an interesting offseason, but they're still, they've got Yelich and they've got a few other good pieces. Um, so they're going to be right there. <clears throat> Cardinals are going to be right there, um, although they didn't really make you know, make any significant moves and they lost Ozuna. So we'll see. So they're all kind of bunched together. Right. And um, so I think maybe they're all sort of going to sort of play the game and see how they, how they do. And then, you know, maybe which, whichever one is, is struggling, you know, then you might see some activity in terms of the trade market. Yeah, definitely. It's, that's going to be one of the most fun divisions in baseball to watch this year up there with the NL East. Those are two divisions that are pretty bunched together at the top with three or four teams heavily involved so yeah and with with more of the previously i don't want to use the word tanking but i just did mm -hmm. uh, previously non-competitive teams now stepping up you know right, Reds, yeah. padres white Sox, uh even the blue jays are making noise the the you know the, the chances of it being an interesting trade deadline only increase in my opinion with so mm -hmm. many teams thinking they have a shot you know so it, it should be a very interesting summer definitely i'm very much looking forward to it. 
as I'm sure we all are. None of a spring training's fun, but we can't wait for real baseball to be back. So yeah. luckily, we're not too far away from that. All right, and on that note, let's transition into our trade of the week. Um, as usual, to be considered here, just feel free to post whatever trade proposals on our site. Um, and if the users like it, and if we like it enough, maybe you'll hear it featured in an episode. So this one comes from user Gwaza. Gwaza? Mm. Um, I think it's Gwaza, but who knows? <laughs> all right. <laughs> um, and as we were mentioning earlier, it's a Will Myers proposal. So here he has Will Myers, Cal Quantrill, right-handed pitcher, and lefty Adrian Morejon. Of course, he's making me say the name again in the episode. I hope I got it right. Awesome. Um, as well as $33 million cash headed to the Red Sox in exchange for outfielder Jackie Bradley Jr. and shortstop C.J. Catham. So, as usual, we look at you know the balance of likes and dislikes. So far as we're recording this, there are eight likes and nine dislikes. And that's a pretty fairly balanced uh, response. And that's mm -hmm. usually the sign of a fair deal, not to mention the numbers are pretty close. Um, so it's been reported that, you know, the Red Sox and Padres are talking um, with Myers going to Boston. San Diego is willing to kick in reportedly about half of what he's owed, which is 61 million. So this 33 million in cash is pretty darn close to that. And then, you know, it was also rumored that the Red Sox were interested in an armor, too. And there you go with uh, Quantrill and Morejon. Um, you know, neither one are in the upper echelon of their young pitching prospects, mm -hmm. you know, with Mackenzie Gore being the top and Luis Patino, uh, the other one, uh, those two look like budding stars. So, but, you know, San Diego looks like they're willing to part with a few others from their surplus of, of young talent. So, so this one makes sense from San Diego's point of view. They're certainly desperate to get rid of the Will Myers contract. And from the Boston point of view, you know, we mentioned in our podcast last week that, um, even though Myers is due to make 61 million or roughly 20 million over the next three years, his his impact on the CPD is much less than that. The uh, mm -hmm. better balance tax because it's averaged out over the course of his contract, and so it's only about 13 million a year rather than 20. So in other words, they're not taking on a whole lot that affects their CBT. So it's an even there's a there's a hidden bonus in there for Boston. And um, I, what I liked about this one also is that the Padres be getting uh, Jackie Bradley Jr. back. And I like that for two reasons. Number one, they just traded Manuel Margot. Um, so I'm not quite clear who their center fielder is going to be. And lo and behold, JBJ, there's where he, mm -hmm. that's where he could fit in. And also, you know, A.J. Preller, the, the San Diego GM, is on the hot seat. He's got one year to, to make them a winner. JBJ has one year left. Why not just go for it? You know, there's 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 not really a loss there. And plus, from Boston's point of view, they're getting rid of another salary. So, uh, you know, that's a good fit. And then the San Diego's getting a, a you know a prospect out of it too, um, who has some upside. So so it's a fair trade, I think, all around. Yeah, um, I do think the what's what's nice about as you mentioned the Bradley acquisition is it gives them a lot of options out there too. Um, so right now, obviously, Tommy Pham is guaranteed a spot, and I think he might be the only outfielder there that is guaranteed a spot. Um, in addition, they have Trent Grisham, they have Ranchi Cordero, they have Josh Naylor, uh, they still have Myers right now. Uh, but none of those guys are really, none of those guys are ones that I would be too excited about right now starting in two of my three outfield spots if I'm trying to take a run at the division maybe or at least a wild card spot. That's not a lot of certainty there, so maybe... 
maybe Bradley's a guy they slot into center field, say we know what we're getting from him. It's probably a two-win season based on defense, and anything he gives us with the bat is gravy. It's, it's a left-handed hitting Manny Margot. Mm-hmm. Um, alternatively, they can flip either Bradley or one of those other outfielders. Um, I'd say probably not Grisham since it seems like they really liked him. They mm-hmm. acquired him very intentionally this offseason. And uh, I just read some quotes today as well about Franchi Cordero that they're very high on him. Fernando Tatis Jr. even saying that, hey, if he's healthy and he's playing every day to the best of his ability, he's a better player than me. Yeah. Um, I don't know how true that is, but... (laughs) Well, it's a little bit of hype, but the other sort of obvious point is if he's healthy, which he hasn't been. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That is the big question with him. Yeah. But adding a Bradley that's... A guy like Bradley that's easier to... That's just a better fit for their current outfield situation. And if they decide to trade him, easier to trade than Myers makes a lot of sense. I mean, Mm -hmm. a guy like Bradley or a guy like Naylor would have a lot of appeal to a team like the Orioles or the Tigers or the Royals or one of those bottom feeder type teams that has plenty of openings in their outfield. And in the case of Bradley, can give him half a season to see what he does and flip him for prospects at the deadline. Or in the case of Naylor, can give him every day at bats and see if he can turn into the power hitter that people thought he would when he was a top prospect. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of flexibility there. Um, The other prospect they're acquiring, CJ Chatham. Chatham? 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 I think it's Chatham. One of the three. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, He's relatively blocked in Boston. Um, Obviously, it's not necessarily – they have a bit of a weakness at second base right now, but they did just acquire Jeter Downs. Uh, they're obviously very high on him to have given up bets as to have received him as part of the return for bets as a significant piece of the return for bets. Um, so he could be a guy that slots up the middle for them in the near ish future, maybe not 2020, but looking at 2021 mm-hmm. and they have Xander Bogarts locked up long-term at shortstop. So you can never have too much infield depth, but maybe Chatham is a guy that, isn't at the top of that depth chart and they can afford to lose him since as we mentioned last week in this will myers deal the red sox wouldn't be looking to give up prospects of note yeah that's the only thing that gave me pause because yes. they're in the opposite camp they need to build their their farm and yes so... but but i think i think if they are just giving up a blocked prospect like chatham um who doesn't even he doesn't have necessarily superstar upside or anything he profiles right. probably more as a bench guy anyway or as a a lower division starter and in return they're getting two guys with pretty significant upside maybe not top top prospects in morehone and quantrill but they have a wide open spot for their fifth spot in the rotation right now mm-hmm. and guys like eduardo rodriguez chris sale are only getting older and closer to free agency so yeah, yeah. Vivaldi is you never right. know what you get yeah. with him at this point yeah <coughs> so i think it makes sense for a lot of reasons and yeah i think the uh, users of our site that have voted up eight times and down nine times, <laughs> I think I think they agree. Yeah. Great. All right. So there's that. As, as I said earlier, if you want to be considered for the trade of the week, all you have to do is send us a submission, put in a submission on the site, and if we like it enough, if the users like it enough, maybe you'll hear it. Okay. So now let's hop into the main feature segment of the episode and we're going to be talking about starting pitcher risk it's something we've mentioned before i know we talked about it a little bit last week 
but Mark Shapiro, um, executive with the Toronto Blue Jays, had some interesting comments about it this week. So do you want to get into those, John? Um, so it was interesting that the Blue Jays signed Hanjin Ryu uh, because, you know, most observers felt like Toronto's probably a year-ish away from competing. Um, so why would they be signing a, an expensive, risky free agent? Um, so it was a little bit surprising, but again, there seems to be a trend for jumping the gun. Maybe Toronto doesn't compete this year, but they're looking for Ryu to help them starting maybe in 2021. We'll still have another three years of him. Um, but, you know, crunching the numbers, um, Ryu looks a bit risky to us. Um, for one thing, <clears throat> from a performance standpoint, he's always been known to have great stuff, but it's somewhat inconsistent of a pattern. He was great in the first half of 2019, and then he started getting tired in the, in the second half. So, you know, y y it's hard to sort of count on him for a full year. And then there's the injury risk, which is an even bigger issue with him. It's really hard to see him putting up a full year, a typical year, even an average year is 150 innings. He's never come close to that in a year. So you have to factor that into his price. You know, on in the, in the free agent market for starting pitchers, 20 million a year over four years may not be as exorbitant as some of the other deals we saw, but for him, it, it's a little bit pricey. We see him as significantly sort of underwater, a very good chance to do that. And I think all things would have to go well in order for him to to hit that mark. I mean, right now our best estimate has him at around 58 and a half million fair value. So they're significantly underwater, even if you factor in. You know, maybe they make it to the postseason next year, and he has he, he contributes there. He can add a couple more million in value. Maybe best case scenario, they do it in the next three years after that. Maybe you can justify it, but it's that's a lot of maybes. So for everything to go well, I think they took on significant risk, and I think Shapiro ad admitted that in a recent quote. Yes, yeah, the that's the interesting thing there that he almost admitted that it's going to be underwater in the back half. Mm -hmm. um, the quote right here I'm looking at, and this is via Shi Davidi of Sportsnet. He said, "Free agent starting pitcher, free agent starting pitching in general is a high risk market, and we're very aware of that. That's why we're so careful. You don't pound your chest over signing someone. You have all your reasons for doing it. You know the risks going in. We identified the need and felt this was one of the best opportunities for us to get better and take a step." And then a little later, he said, "It's certainly not ideal, but it's certainly not disastrous." Contracts get more risky as a player ages, so you would expect to get more on the front side. And truer words were never spoken. I love that quote because yeah. it speaks exactly to what, what we see when we sort of crunch the numbers, and particularly over time. And some of the points he's, he's making square exactly with what we see. And, you know, we had in any of these sort of free agent contracts. Now, mind you, we're not in the business of predicting free agent contracts. Once they sign, we sort of crunch the numbers and say, is it close to fair value? We also use them as a benchmark to make mm -hmm. sure that our, our valuations are reasonably close. And on the whole, they usually are. So in theory, you know, um, and this is true more for everybody, not just starting pitchers, hitters everywhere. What we want to see is, generally speaking, you know, 
free agent signing, to be fair, shouldn't have a whole lot of surplus value. You can be a little bit over, a little bit under, and that's that's about right. But with starting pitchers, it's a little bit unusual because people really will overpay, and we saw this in a, this past offseason. So Toronto overpaid for, for Ryu, in our opinion. And there's a few things. Now, I mentioned the injury risk, but there's also a concept called contract risk, which is basically the longer you go out, and you know, the more you sort of fork over in money over a longer period of time, the more chances that something goes wrong in the first year or two, and then you're stuck. You've still got that bill to pay over the next mm-hmm. couple of years, and that has happened quite a bit. Now, it's possible that they take out some insurance, particularly on a longer-term contract. We saw that with the Mets and Dick Wright. It was more of a famous case of it. We don't really know. They never publicized those aspects of it. But we do know there's a lot of risk, and particularly with, with starting pitchers. So starting pitching is the most expensive market in terms of dollars per war that we see. It's also the one most prone to injury risk because of all those innings that those guys pitch and how mm-hmm. much importance is placed on them. So you see them going down quite a bit. And so you have to balance the reward and the risk with that. And Shapiro's quote speaks exactly to that and exactly what we're seeing in the numbers. Yeah, I, I think specifically for this signing, the two it, it surprised me on, on two fronts. It surprised me the dollar value. It was a four-year, $80 million deal, which... The twenty million AAV that seemed much higher than I think anyone really had Ryu. He just came off a fantastic year, but given all of the uncertainty there, I don't think anybody <clears> expected him getting quite that much <throat> over four years. And then the team itself. In the past, we've seen that these rebuilding teams that are maybe like just starting to kind of creep towards their uh, window of contention, they either kind of go all in or all out, and so. Maybe it would have made sense for the Blue Jays to open up the checkbook and hand Garrett Cole a blank check, and they got the superstar, clear best player on the market, and that's them saying, we're going for it now. We're going to try and jump our window a little bit, and even if it doesn't work out in this first year, at least we have this superstar-level talent under control for the next for the entirety of our rebuild, hopefully. Um, or you'll see those teams kind of stand by, stand by, and maybe if they miss out on that top player or they don't even offer to him at all, they'll kind of hang out around the periphery. They'll make some smaller additions, one-year deals, two-year deals, kind of, kind of what the Marlins did this off-season. I, I think the Blue Jays are closer to contention than the Marlins are, but they do the typical rebuilding, one-year deals, see if they can flip these guys for prospects later. Ryu kind of represented the middle option of. They're still paying a pretty hefty price tag for this guy that's probably most of his value is going to come in 2020, or 2020 2021. Mm-hmm. And so for a team that's not guaranteed to be competitive in 2020, and I'd say isn't even necessarily guaranteed to be competitive in 2021, it's a curious fit. Um, I will say that when he's been healthy, Ryu has been dominant. He's been a very, very good starting pitcher. Agreed. In 2013, his rookie seat, well, his rookie season stateside, uh, three ERA over 30 starts. In 2014, 338 ERA over 26 starts. Then he started to deal with the injury bug. I believe he went under the knife Tommy John in 2015. Um, hmm. 2017, he comes back and has an all right season. And then 2018, 2019, he just lights out. 197 ERA in 2018 over 15 starts, 232 ERA in tw- in 2019 over 29 starts un untouchable so I, I toronto knows they're getting talent and this is a guy that's only gotten better as he's aged 
it's just a question of how many innings and how is he how is his body going to hold up over the course of the next four years so right, right. so i'm going to take the under on that one <laughs> yes i, I think I'm, I'm definitely still with you there it's uh, just a question of how much and as you get further yeah. into the future you know it's harder to predict but of, uh, of how much and of what that looks like yeah so i think i think if if Ryu posts a 380 ERA each of the next four years, it'll be a disappointment in terms of what he's being paid. But I think it works out better with Toronto's timeline. If he posts a 250 ERA this year, a 3 ERA next year, and then he's up in the fours and fives the last two years, I think that contract's a failure, even if maybe he produces the same overall value as if you went 380 380 380 380 i think the shape of that contract and the shape of that production given toronto's timeline would make the contract a failure so that's why yeah. it's weird to me that's exactly right that's a great point it's not quite matching their window of contention if they're not contending mm-hmm. in the next year maybe not the year after but and it's are. not a contract that should be even remotely easy to flip right. if it doesn't match their window of contention the way exactly like it and then it's going to go underwater yeah yeah yeah, so um, I'd like to point out um, that when we get into sort of longer-term contracts, and we'll talk about the Garrett Cole one as well, mm-hmm. um, you know, obviously no one can predict the future. Um, but what you can do is use your tools to kind of estimate the best you can. And, you know, for those, you know, we look at, you know, there's a lot of research on aging curves, uh, and those affect both performance and injuries and so the farther you get into your 30s obviously the more you're going to decline the more your performance goes down typically the more your health goes down and so your numbers overall go down and down and down but the oftentimes what you see is the fixed uh, the contract remains fixed so in Ryu's case he's making 20 20 20 20 but his performance is going down 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 over the years and so that's why you see like it's going to be okay in the first year maybe two but then it's going to go under there um, quite often what you see, the normal pattern is because human beings like to have a fixed amount of, of income, you see that sort of flat number on the salary side, but you see the performance number and the risk number going down. So, you know, um, Garrett Cole's contract, um, you know, he's, so he was just a recap, you know, he finally agreed to a nine-year contract with the Yankees for $324 million overall. That's $36 million a year every year for the mm-hmm. next nine years. So the way that pattern shapes out is there's going to be a little bit of surplus in the first one. Um, For example, in our estimates, we had about a $7 million surplus in 2020, and then it goes down to about a five-ish, you know, in the next year or two, and then it jumps, and then as he goes down, it gets into three, and then then it basically flattens out, and then it goes under in the next, in the last four or five. And it's just a question of how much he goes under, and time will only tell. Um, So all we can do is sort of crunch the numbers and use aging curves as a guide towards that. I should note that the major uh, projection systems do the same thing. You'll see Dan Savorsky of Zips sort of occasionally do a longer-term projection in his time to follow that same pattern. Pakoda uh, will publish their longer-term projections, and they typically follow aging curves as well. And so we use those as a guide. We're not trying to predict the future. We're just using them as a guide because that's what history tells Mm -hmm. us typically happens. And so... Um, but what's interesting about the Garrett Cole contract is obviously that's a heck of a lot of money. 30, $36 million a year is unprecedented for a pitcher over that period of time as well. Mm-hmm. But in my view, it's actually not that not as risky uh, because, number one, he's the best pitcher in baseball right, right now, in my opinion. Both the numbers and the eyeball tests uh, show that. Number two, yeah. 
there's very little injury risk there. He is a sturdy, dependable guy. Uh, you know, he there's nothing on his record that would indicate anything scary. Mm-hmm. You know, he's as solid as they come, both in terms of performance and in terms of, of health. So GMs love certainty, and so you can kind of bank on that, which means those calculations are not as big of a factor. You know, you do have some contract risk. If, God forbid, something horrible happens in the first year or two, then you're stuck with it. Um, but, you know... I'm sure they've probably taken out insurance to cover that as well. So mm-hmm. um, overall, that ironically doesn't look as bad of a contract as, as the Ryu contract does to me. Yeah. It doesn't seem to be as quite as underwater for, for all those reasons. I, I do want to add that those projections are obviously not set in stone. I they're, His 2020 projections obviously bake in some regression from how mm-hmm. incredible he was in 2019. But if he goes back out there, and he's the same pitcher in 2020 as he was in 2018, 2019, then in, in a way it gets pushed back a year. Yeah. If he's projected for 7 million in surplus in 2020 and he has that 20 or, and he has that 2019 caliber season, that seven number probably goes up pretty significantly. Mm-hmm. And then, so maybe the aging curve as a result, maybe instead of the last four years being projected to be underwater, maybe now it's just the last three years. Right. And, and no player follows this aging curve exactly. It's an estimate. But uh, that's that's important to note. So just don't, don't be freaking out that, oh, no, Garrett Cole's going to be bad for the last four or five years of his contract, guaranteed. But it's just the most likely outcome based on our historical data. Yeah, and, and certainly the Yankees know this. You know, Cashman is a smart guy. So, mm-hmm. you know, he's got a window of contention right now, and he's willing to pay that price for the upfront uh, mm-hmm you know, value of, of Garrett Cole's, you know, services right now. And we're not even, by the way, counting the October premium. The Yankees seem yeah. like a good bet to go to the playoffs. And so it would be a shock if they weren't. Yeah. So, and in, in no doubt his performance will contribute to that. So, so there's probably some undercounting here that, you know, we could factor in if we wanted to, um, to say that's probably a fair deal overall. It's surprising mm-hmm. to say for nine years and 324 is a fair deal. Mm-hmm. It kind of looks that way to me. And, and especially looks even more so, uh, as we've said before, we're working with the median team here. Yeah. Um, obviously, that contract is much more palatable for the Yankees than it would be for another team. And I think that's where you get into a weird spot with Toronto, where they haven't necessarily run those $200 million payrolls historically. Uh, this is the largest contract Shapiro has ever handed out this four years, $80 million to Ryu. And it does fit their timeline. Um, they don't have a lot of other guys under contract making a lot of money right now. And by year four of that deal, I believe Vlad Guerrero and Bo Bichette will be in their first year of arbitration, if I'm doing my mental math correctly. And so, yes, they're, if, they're the type of, if they end up having the type of career that they're projected to based on their talent, they'll start to get a little expensive. But even the best players in their first year of arbitration usually aren't clearing 10 mil even. So it he'll likely be off the books before their other stars start getting expensive. So maybe in a sense yeah. he does fit the timeline decently. Yeah, yeah, that's true. They had some money to burn there, so yes. why not? But yeah. again, there's always the argument that even if you have money to burn, there might have been a better way to spend it. <laughs> Opportunity cost, that's right. Yes. Um, okay, so the third pitcher we talked about, Ray, we talked about Cole, uh, that I sort of wanted to point out with mm-hmm. the starting pitcher for you is Zach Wheeler. Um, okay. Zach Wheeler signed with the Phillies for five years, 118 million. Uh, consensus at the time was 
Philly overpaid for him because um, he was popular view of him was that he was not an ace. Um, you know, he, he kind of, you know, was in the shadow of, of DeGrom and Syndergaard when he was with the Mets. So he was kind of considered a solid number three. And obviously he had some injury history as well. It took him a while to come back from Tommy John. Um, but, you know, what we saw is actually the last year or two, he developed into a, a sneaky good pitcher and his peripherals were very solid and his, you know, all his numbers actually look very strong. And now you can make a case that he's in his prime and he's starting from, you know, a high enough spot that even when you factor in some regression and some aging curve stuff, it's actually not that bad a deal. It's a little bit underwater, but it, it's, um, you know, not, not extremely so. And one thing I also have to point out is that the free agent market is an auction model. In other words, the deal that finally gets signed is the winning, the winning bid is the one that outbid everybody else's. So, uh, you know, it's not a surprise to see it's going to be, you know, a little bit over what other people paid. In other words, 29 other teams probably would not have paid him 118 million. One team will. Mm -hmm. So, so it's natural to say, okay, well, if he were traded to one of those other 29 teams, they would value him slightly less because they weren't willing to pony up that much. That's fair. And that's normal. Um, so you're going to see at the top of the market in, in many of these cases, you know, some overpays because that's what the teams, uh, you know, had to do in order to get to win the auction. Um, but I don't think it's as much of an overpay as people thought it was initially. And the numbers certainly don't look that bad to us. Yeah, Wheeler's an interesting comp to Ryu because he's in a very similar boat where when he's been healthy, he's been excellent. Um, at the start of his career, that looked more like a mid-rotation arm. And then once he came back fully from his Tommy John surgery in 2018, he looked more like, I wouldn't say an ace, but a front-end type of arm, maybe a number two. And last year, looking at his peripherals, he did look like a number two. Maybe the ERA doesn't show that. And I think if he continues to post an ERA right around four, um, regardless of his peripherals, I think that'll be a little, it, the contract will end up being a bit of a disappointment for Philly. But he has a lot of the same risks as Ryu, except he's cleared 180 innings each of the last two seasons, which Ryu cannot say. And he's three years younger than Ryu. And so it makes sense that he'd get a larger contract and, Honestly, I like this contract significantly more than I like Ryu's. Um, there's similar risk there, but I'd say it's significantly lesser, and he's got the potential to be the same caliber of pitcher as Ryu, or even if he is a slight step below talent-wise, he'll do it in 30, 40 more innings. Yeah, yeah, those are good points. And speaking of his peripherals, um... One of the things we like to look at is uh, ex-WOBA for starting pitcher. The average, you know, is is about 320 for a starting pitcher. He's been under three the last two years, 279 mm -hmm. in 2018 and 298 in 2019. So that's, uh, you know, that's a good, you know, that's that's the quality of contact that, that the batters are making off of him. That's significantly above average. So that, that gives me... Uh, confidence that he's you know he's obviously in his prime right now but you know it's it's also a good sign that he's going to hold that prime for a while mm -hmm. I, I think it's a case where the average baseball fan saw him as a number three at best because he was he was a number three in his rotation he was behind Jacob deGrom arguably either the best or second best starting pitcher in all of baseball right now 
and he was behind Noah Syndergaard, who has all the talent in the world, 99-mile-an-hour sinkers and 90-mile-an-hour change-up slider, whatever. And great hair. Uh, yes. <laughs> he's, he's everything you could want from a pitcher. Um, and then once they added Stroman, maybe you even see Wheeler as a number four all of a sudden. And so there's a misconception there where the Mets have, and especially when they had Wheeler, had one of the best rotations in baseball. So it's hard to judge a guy. You can't really judge a guy based on his environment and where he slots into his current rotation. You have to judge him based on his own talent alone. And just because he's behind three of the better starting pitchers in baseball doesn't mean he's a number four. Um, That's right. By by talent or by value. He's a guy that went kind of under the radar because of that. So I think some fans were surprised by the size of his contract. Um, I'm a little surprised it was only a five-year deal. I thought he might get a sixth. But yeah. I think there was some of the injury and a tiny bit of uncertainty based on him not performing to his peripherals last year that played a role there and limited his contract a little bit. Yeah. Um, but I think he will be – I think he's got a ch- good chance to be very useful for Philadelphia, at least in the first few years of that deal. And I don't think his decline has the potential – I mean, anybody can decline into nothing and just be a waste of money. But I think there's a lot less risk there in those last two years of the deal than there is for a guy like Ryu. Yeah, and I would add that um, Philly's getting a heck of a good deal with Aaron Nola. They signed mm-hmm. him to a very team-friendly contract. There's a lot of surplus there. He hasn't even hit his prime yet, in my view. Um, he started off a little shaky in 2019, but then he kind of found his groove. He was great in 2018. So, you know, I think I think there's a lot of good performance to come. All the projection systems seem to agree. You know, and he's got, you know, a very uh, minimal contract, which means they can afford to take a slightly bigger risk on Wheeler. So, um, and Wheeler kind of slots now into that number two role behind Noah. Mm-hmm. You know, Jake Arrieta kind of disappointed them when they sort of signed him actually two years yeah. ago now. Um, and he's clearly in decline. So I think they needed a really solid number two, and I think Wheeler gets them there. Yeah, I, I think that he makes them a much stronger team without him or another similar starting pitcher addition. Uh, whether it was getting involved in the coal bidding, which I don't think they could just, I just don't think they could afford based on where their luxury tax is. And right no one now. was going to outbid the Yankees on that. Yes. One. There was just, yeah. It was obvious. <laughs> and, and, and you need to consider that the Phillies have JT Realmuto's contract running out this year. Mm-hmm. He's going to hit the market next year. The best catcher in baseball, full stop, no debate in my eyes. Um, no, I, I, that's the consensus. Yep. And they want to lock him up. They're, he's done wonders for their team, for their pitching staff. He's an excellent ball player, and he's not going to be cheap at all. He's fantastic. He's young. Um, and maybe if they add a Cole or any, or even a – I wouldn't say a Ryu. Even if they add a Cole or if Strasburg had been available to them and not been re-signed by their rival nationals, um, maybe that makes that a little harder. So I think – Wheeler hit that sweet spot of talent and he was going to cost them money, but maybe not a ton and enough to where they still have some roster and some budget flexibility in the future. That's right. So the longest short, longest short of it is starting, starting pitching is a very expensive market. It always will be with either in uh, free agency or in trade uh, because that has the biggest impact, I think, and highest correlation to a team winning typically. Um, 
you know, and so that's why it's so expensive. Those guys control the flow of the game, and they pitch 150 to 200 innings a year, mm-hmm. and the good ones are scarce, and so that that drives up their price. Yeah, and um, we could go on for another half hour about <laughs> this. We could talk about Bumgarner. We could talk about Strasburg. Yep. We could even get into a smaller tier guy like Tanner Roark with the yep. Blue Jays and where that might have seemed like a little bit of an overpay given his age and performance. A little um, bit, yeah, yeah. So we, yeah. we could go on, but I think we've nailed some of the main archetypes and some of the main deals that uh, the outlier deals that might have looked a little curious and explaining how the shape of their contract and the shape of their production, it makes sense. Yeah, and we don't have time to talk about this week, but the flip side of that coin is a young pitcher who is just coming into his prime and still has a lot of years of control and is still cheap. We're talking Walker Bueller, Jack Flaherty. Mm-hmm. Those guys are way up there in terms of our yeah. highest value list, you know. So that's that's the gold right there, because it's you know it's it you know it's if you can grow your own ace, mm-hmm. man, you are set. <laughs> it, it creates this weird duality of these are some of the riskiest assets in baseball because they are pitchers, mm-hmm. and any pitching isn't good for you it's it's a very bad thing your body doesn't <laughs> like it when you pitch when you throw baseballs 99 miles an hour your elbow gets mad at you your shoulder gets mad at you it's not a good thing yeah but despite that inherent risk it's high risk high reward they're one of the most valuable assets in baseball because they're so rare yeah so on that note um i think we'll transition into the last segment of the show where we're going to continue to review some of the off-season moves Um, from this past winter and I think today we wanted to take a look at the San Diego Padres who had by our values by our model one of the weirdest (laughs) options in baseball so much so that I wrote a wrote a piece on it yeah the nuttiness of AJ Preller Um, yeah I, I, I was beginning to believe that Preller was a user a reader of baseball trade values and said huh I don't like these guys let's just mess with them now, um, I think that, yeah, all kidding aside, the, the, the obvious point is that his job is on the line. His owner said so. He's, you know, he said heads were going to roll, you know, if they didn't have a winning season. So, you know, Preller has been, you know, um, amassing young talent, fantastic, great farm. He's got so much to your earlier point that he doesn't mind dealing from it now, but now he has to. And so, no, he's practically giving away the farm. Now, he's not trading away his super-duper top prospects, but he's trading away some some prospects here and there or some tweeners who, you know, maybe um, he's not quite a believer in anymore. So he's, he's, he's throwing stuff around. And the other GMs have noticed. The smart GMs have noticed. David Stearns has noticed. Eric Neander has noticed. So they're doing deals with him. Um, now, according to our model, these guys – when they trade, it's a bit of an outlier for the most part. Um, I frankly, now two points on the first big one he made, which was the Luis Urias uh, to the Brewers trade where he got Trent Christian and Zach Davies, uh, which made no sense to us whatsoever. Um, Mm -hmm. um, Having since sort of, you know, reconsidered it since then, what we found, and we talked about this on our first podcast, is that we were over over on uh, Urias because his prospect rating was kind of stuck in time and it should have gone down and so once we adjusted for that it made a little bit more sense but in the context of his other trades it was still a kind of an overpay actually uh, on Preller's part because then he made some more overpays um, mm-hmm. 
you know, taking Dirks and Profar from the A's when the A's were about to non-tender him, giving away two prospects to them. Now, maybe there was some other com competition for, for Profar. Who knows? It just didn't make a whole lot of rational sense. We were a little bit over on Allen at the time. And since then, he's been adjusted down a little bit, but it was still a bit of an overpay. And, and you know, justifiably... You know, Profar seems to be a guy that Preller loved from his days yes, with the yeah. Rangers. So you can argue, you can say he's trading with his heart, not his head. Um, so that one, yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, we think he overpaid for Tommy Pham as well. For the, for the, you know, he basically just tossed in Xavier Edwards, one of the yeah. best prospects, and he didn't really need to, from what we could see on paper. Um, so I, yeah. So we've it, it got to the point where we're calculating the, you know, when we we do our numbers for you know how we're doing versus real life. There's the overall, and there's the ones without AJ because they were just throwing us off. Um, and and what's really funny, <laughs> what's really funny about all three of those deals actually, is that as there as the reporting is is going on, as the news is coming through of the players that are involved in the deal, um, whenever that whenever a deal is breaking, I I don't know if you do it, I instantly jump to the site and as it's breaking, I'm adding the players into the trade simulator to uh -huh. see how how we fared and. Usually I have a pretty good idea of it as we're, um, as it's breaking on its own, just because I've looked at the data for way more hours than, yeah. <laughs> than I should have. But um, I like to see how it's going. And so in all three of these cases, as the trade was breaking, it's like, huh, that's a pretty significant overpay for the Padres. <laughs> and then it keeps going and there's another player and another player. And then all three of those players, had, all three of those trades had the Padres adding a player to be named later on top of their overpay. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was funny every single time it happened. Like, the Brewers won. They, they got a player to be named later. The Brewers got a player to be named later along with Urias and Lauer. Um, the A's, uh, it, they were – a lot of A's fans were shocked to have received anything of value for Profar, let alone – a decent prospect in austin allen and then you find out a month later on top of it they're getting another interesting little prospect in buddy reed yeah and then same deal for the Rays padres deal with renfro and edwards where wow. just throwing in a player to be named later i mean and often those player to be named laters are very low value or even turn into cash but it's it's weird. It is. I, I don't know how to explain it, and I think I think you got as close as we can to explaining it, and I'll let you get into that. Yeah. So, um, I, all I can do is he had he's 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 trying to you know establish a, a new sort of you know winning record for his team. He's on the hot seat. He's going to lose his job basically if he doesn't. So he's targeting guys he likes, and he's trading from surplus. Uh, because he's got a surplus of prospects. And you made the point earlier that teams can do that and probably should. They need to consolidate. But there's a smart way of doing that, which the Rays typically do. And then there's yeah. kind of the, I don't want to say dumb, but there's a, I think Be he's... Be less efficient. <laughs> <laughs> just throwing him out there because like, he has to. And I think mm -hmm. other teams are taking advantage of that. I mean... And this isn't this is something we've seen from him in the past as well. We he's, have. He's a, I think he's a smart executive, but... There, he does let it does seem like, and this is we don't know him personally. It does seem like sometimes he lets his heart get in the way of his head, 
And we saw that when he first took over the team and he was making all of these insane, he was acquiring Matt Kemp and his sunken contract and inability to play the outfield. He was adding Craig Kimbrell the day before opening day. He was, he was, he had an incredibly aggressive off season when he joined the team and it came to bite him in the butt. Yeah. And and it's, it's funny that he did a complete 180 and then sort of settled down and then started to build a really strong farm and all credit Mm -hmm. due to him for building that strong farm. But now he's back to oh my gosh, <laughs> now he's a gunslinger again, and and just throwing throwing prospects out there. I mean, you know, A's fans know that Jerks and Profar could not throw from second to first. He had the yips. This is a guy that cannot play second base, and yet he gave up two prospects for him <laughs> in a league without a DH. <laughs> yes, and a guy that was about to be non-tendered. <laughs> and. Uh, it, it makes you wonder, and I think this year will be telling. I think if things don't go well, if Profar continues to have the yips and flames out, if Renfro goes off in Tampa Bay and continues his breakout, um, if things go south, I think you'll I think he loses his job, and I think we'll see that, yes, he's incredible at talent evaluator. Maybe he just belongs in that farm director type of role or scouting director role yeah. instead of the GM. Because he, he's done a phenomenal job at identifying that he loved Fernando Tatis. Um, that, that's, that's why yeah. he specifically targeted him in that now infamous James Shields trade. It wasn't just, oh, we'll take this lottery ticket. It was a guy Preller loved. Yeah. And we've come to learn a few years later, rightfully so. He's one of the best in the game probably at evaluating younger talent and maybe he just ended up in a role where he had a little too much power went a little bit outside of his comfort zone yeah now i should point out one other sort of weird thing that maybe i'm the only one who noticed this but there were two trades with tampa mm-hmm. um you know the the you know the first one we already talked about was was tommy fam and he seemed to be overpaying for tommy fam by throwing in xavier edwards um, but when we crunched the numbers on the later trade where he traded for Emilio Pagan, it actually looked like an overpay for the Rays. And it started to make me wonder, like, I just for fun, I put them two to, the two together as if they were conducted at the same time. And sure enough, they, they turned out actually pretty close to even. And so sometimes I wonder, and I've seen this pattern before, if there's a little bit of IOU thing going on behind the scenes. It's mm-hmm. just total speculation on me. It's probably me being a conspiracy theorist, and I don't <laughs> typically, it's not me. Um, but sometimes I wonder, because I saw a similar pattern last year with the Yankees and Mariners in the James Paxton trade, where it seemed like mm-hmm. the, uh, the Yankees got the better side of the deal. And then later in the uh, offshoot of the Sunny Gray trade, they threw him a better prospect um, as if to even it out. And I again have nothing to base this on it's total speculation um but i have been noticing sometimes that happens um so i sort of wonder if if maybe there's a little bit because i you know then you hear reports like oh yeah we were talking back you know four months ago we're at the winter meetings and you know these things so a lot of times Mm -hmm. these deals get constructed on paper and they sort to exchange names and they figure out okay we like this guy we like that guy and work it out but maybe it doesn't work out in terms of timing but then it all sort of works out in the end total speculation that's one of the things I'm just sort of wondering about. Yeah, I, I'm, I might not go so far as you in that uh, <laughs> belief as it's an IOU sort of thing, but I do think there is something to be said about teams that trade multiple times over the course, that make significant trades multiple times over the course of a short period of time, um, say like a year or less. Um, 
this is very anecdotal. Uh, I'm I'm no fantasy baseball expert. Uh, you yourself are just getting into fantasy baseball a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, we're in a dynasty league, and I inherited a roster with Bryce Harper, and so Bryce Harper is a very valuable dynasty asset because he's as he is and he's a young superstar potential. Uh, those those don't grow on tr- those don't grow on trees. Uh, and I had another owner that from almost day one of when I joined this league was hounding me about him and always sending all these trade offers. And some of them were ridiculous, low ball. I would laugh him out of the room, but he was persistent. And we had negotiations that would go for a little bit and then die. But there were times during those negotiations where I just thought to myself, we've been talking for so long, maybe I just hit accept. (laughs) <laughs> on a deal that isn't necessarily fair value, but maybe I just do it. And eventually, just last week, actually, we the negotiations came back to life, and we were able to find common grounds, and we agreed to a deal. And now I don't think, I don't think I ultimately did end up selling low or anything. I think I got a fair deal, but I wonder if something similar can happen with trades. I wonder if originally Pagan was included in some of these discussions for. Uh, for Renfro, Fam, that mm-hmm. deal. Mm-hmm. I wonder if Pagan was originally one of the names there, and there was a lot of haggling back and forth, and maybe they just couldn't find a way to make it worth th- work then. But the negotiations were going on so long, and so they just said, "All right, let's. We can agree to this version of this deal right now. We'll continue these discussions for Pagan throughout the off season, and maybe as a result of that, you're right. It is maybe one trade in essence." that just kind of got split up by time. I, I It wouldn't surprise me, and mm-hmm. I'm just speculating, like I said, um, but stranger things have happened. Um, yeah. You know, sometimes you, you in, in, and certainly my, my bias is to try to say, okay, let's see if this is fair or not. But, you know, I certainly know that not all trades are fair. Every team has different needs. We all know that. And so there's going to be different mm-hmm. prices based on different needs and so on. So, um, so it's the most likely sort of Occam's razor explanation is just, you know, these were fitting needs and it worked out. And so, and, you know, Tampa Bay also has a tendency to trade from surplus as well. So it's easily justified on that, on that front. Um, but certainly the, the longest, the longer story short here is that um, Preller's job is on the line and he's making deals that, uh, you know, are geared towards the short term win, not the long term. So we've seen that pattern consistently, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know whether it throws off our model or not is less important to him and certainly you know we see that in the long run but you know sometimes we have to look at it from that point of view rather than from just from a sheer value fair value point of view and recognize that mm-hmm. teams needs are different and even if it doesn't line up with our model i think it's fun for baseball i think it's good for <laughs> baseball it's in a way it's the mike illich but of gms <laughs> and of trades where mike illich maybe he wasn't always making the with the tigers yeah uh, maybe he wasn't always signing the smartest contracts uh, handing out the smartest deals but he put together a competitive team said i don't care if we're underwater in year three of this eight-year deal it's going to be good for the first two and that's what i care about i want to win a ring there you go and so and that wasn't he wasn't the most efficient he might have set back detroit in the long term because of it but it was fun and there's something to be said for that. And so maybe Preller is just the trading version of that Mike Illich type. That's right. Well said. All right. So I think that's all we have to cover this week. We actually right. went a little longer than we anticipated, but that's okay. It was all 
All I, in fun. I think it was all, yeah, it was all in fun. It was all good, good discussion. Yeah. So, as usual, if you have any questions, comments, critiques, concerns, whatever, uh, feel free to shoot us an email at baseballtradevalues at gmail.com. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at jive underscore oak or John at, at Bitzer Digital um, and our BTV account at Baseball Values. So if you have anything to ask us about, those are the places you can do it. That's right. All right, John. It's been a fun one, and we'll be back hopefully next week with more. Thanks, Josh. Enjoy it. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Have a great week, everybody. Thank you.